Hi, and welcome to the Magical History Tour Podcast. I'm your tour guide, Hollis, and today our tour group has been invited to a little tea party. So we better get going. In the last episode, we left off after the Boston Massacre, where we left the colony somewhat quiet, but a lot was boiling just under the surface. And in the spring of 1773, colonists will receive the news that Parliament had passed a Tea Act. Now, in the past, colonists had been major tea consumers, but since they had rescinded all of the Townsend Acts except for the tax on tea, the market for colonial tea had collapsed. People were still boycotting it. The East India Company was almost in bankruptcy, and since this company was the sole agent of British power in India, Parliament had to do something. So what they did was they lowered the price of tea in order to tempt these patriotic people who refused to buy it. It would be like lowering the tea to really, really dirt cheap, but still leaving the tax on it. So say, for example, tea cost a dollar a pound. I mean, we're not going with British pounds. <laughs> Let's just pretend in today's time it cost a dollar a pound. And they said, hey, we're going to sell it to you for 50 cents. But then we're going to put this 10 cent tax on it. And so it's still 60 cents. So it's cheap. You should buy it, right? People didn't like that at all. Radicals said that this was a scheme to get people to pay unconstitutional taxes. A lot of them felt like it was an attempt by the British to corrupt the colonists. Most Americans at this time resented Parliament controlling their trade. Others disliked the taxation without representation. Now, four cities were supposed to receive the first shipments of East India tea. It was New York, Boston, Charleston, and Philadelphia. American patriot leaders decided that they're going to resist delivery. Now, in New York, the tea ships were late to arrive. In Philadelphia, the captain of the tea ship was um, persuaded to sail back to England. In Charleston, South Carolina, the tea will be unloaded and stored and later destroyed. But Boston is where we're going to have the showdown. Three tea ships sat in the harbor. So a mass meeting was called in the Old South Church on December 16th of 1773, and an angry crowd gathers. They had attempted to send the ships away, but that had failed. Of course, no one wanted to be pinpointed as the person to have said, hey, let's go throw the tea overboard. So they had to have a plan ahead of time. When they found out that the tea was about to be unloaded, Samuel Adams declared out loud, this meeting can do nothing more to save the country. That was actually a signal. And 50 to 60 men will march to the wharf. They will be disguised as Native Americans and they will board the ships and they dumped 45 tons of tea into the harbor, which was the equivalent of 342 big chests of tea. They were cheered on by Boston citizens. They said, Boston harbors a teapot tonight. That, in case you're wondering how much it is, that would at the time have been 10,000 British pounds worth of tea. Today, that would be um, about 275,000. British pounds, or if you want the American version, it would be over $450,000 worth of tea. That's a lot of tea. <laughs> so the Boston Tea Party, though, is only the first of such protests. In New York, the Sons of Liberty found out that tea had secretly been delivered there. They also will dress as Native Americans and go dump it into the harbor. At Annapolis, a tea ship was destroyed by fire, and a warehouse of tea was burned in New Jersey. But it's Boston that causes the British to blow the gasket. The government decided that the colony of Massachusetts was way too rebellious, and something needed to be done. The British Prime Minister Lord North felt it was treasonous. 
So Parliament will pass a series of acts in the spring of 1774 called the Coercive Acts. Now they're known to the colonists, they'll call them the Intolerable Acts. So either way, Coercive Acts or Intolerable Acts, it's the same thing. They were intended to punish Massachusetts and strengthen the British. Some of them were until the town fully compensated the East India Company and the Customs Service for all the lost tea and all the revenue. The Boston Port Bill would prohibit the loading or unloading of ships in any part of Boston Harbor. So it basically closes Boston Harbor until they pay for the tea. The Massachusetts Government Act actually did several things. It annulled the colony's charter. The upper house delegates would no longer be elected. They would be appointed by the king. Civil officers would be placed under the authority of the royal governor. And jury selection was given to governor-appointed sheriffs. They also prohibited all town meetings in Boston, except for once a year unless they had special permission from the governor, and the governor would control the agendas of any town meeting they had. So these acts basically terminated self-rule in Massachusetts. Additionally, there were some other acts that were passed along with these coercive acts. There was an Administration of Justice Act, which protected any British officials from colonial courts. So it basically gives any British officials free reign to pursue suppression. They happen to kill someone and they get accused of a capital crime while they're putting down a riot or while they're trying to collect a tax or revenue then they would be sent back to England for trial. They would not have trial in the colonies, which really upset people because they felt like they, they would just, you know, get a slap on the wrist and go home in England. There was also a new quartering act uh, the first one that we talked about in the last podcast legalized the housing of troops at public expense, but it was in taverns or abandoned buildings or place other places that it just meant that they had to pay for it through their taxes. This one said they had to be housed at public expense, not just in taverns or abandoned buildings, but in occupied dwellings and private homes. So this meant that someone could come knock on your door and say, hey, here are two soldiers. They're going to be staying with you. And you had to let them stay there. Additionally, General Gage will arrive in Boston in May to take over for Governor Hutchinson. He'll be the new governor and he's a general. So it's basically being run by the military. Boston will actually, okay, call an illegal town meeting on that day. And they called for a revival of all the non-importation measures against Britain. So you can tell that Massachusetts and Boston in particular is not going to back down. Now, during all of this, colonies were choosing representatives for the First Continental Congress. They arrived in Philadelphia in September of 1774, and it included people like Samuel Adams and John Adams of Massachusetts, Patrick Henry, George Washington from Virginia, and a lot of others, several of them fairly conservative men. Most of them in this First Continental Congress wished to avoid war, and they favored economic coercion over anything else. At the First Continental Congress, they'll pass a Declaration and Resolves. Basically, it said that all of the colonists enjoyed rights guaranteed by the laws of nature and the principles of the English Constitution and all these other charters and compacts that the English law is built on. So they basically say, we get all the rights that you do. They then declared that there were specifically 13 acts of parliament that had been passed since 1763 that were in violation of these rights. And until they were repealed, there would be sanctions against the British, including the non-importation and non-consumption of British goods, as well as a prohibition on the export of colonial commodities to Britain or its other colony. The king did attempt a last-minute compromise. On February 27th in 1775, Lord North will issue the conciliatory propositions. Those offered to resolve the dispute by eliminating all taxes on any colony that voluntarily paid both 
worth its share for military defense and for the salaries of the royal governors. So basically, they're being asked to tax themselves. However, by the time the proposition arrived in America, shooting had already started. British officials, like Lord Sandwich, who was the head of the British Navy, were really not concerned. They didn't feel that the colonists were worth worrying about. They didn't feel they were disciplined. A man named Major Pitcairn, who was a British Army officer, he agreed. He wrote home that, and I quote, One active campaign, a smart action, and burning two or three of their towns will set everything to rights. They sorely underestimated the Americans. In April, April 19th of 1775, in fact, General Gage will order 700 men to go and capture the store of American ammunition at the town of Concord. The Boston Committee learned of the operation and they dispatched two men, Paul Revere and William Dawes, to alert the militia in the countryside. By the time the British had reached the halfway point at Lexington, Lexington was halfway between Boston and Concord, about 70 armed Minutemen had assembled on the green in the center of town. Now, they're very disorganized. They didn't really know what was going on. They had been called and they got there and they're ready, but they really don't know what's happening. They're milling around and there were also a lot of townspeople who had gathered to watch what they thought was going to be a silent protest. The British are coming. <laughs> As they're approaching, they see this group of people in the green in the center of town and they call out, ordering them to lay down their arms and disperse. And the Minutemen kind of look around and they're like, you know, they're counting numbers. They're like 100 to that's a lot of hundreds in there and they're counting themselves and they're thinking this really isn't going to be a much of a fight so they do think you know maybe dispersing is great and they did begin to disperse but they did not lay down their arms they were like yeah no we're not doing that so they were warned several times they still did not lay down their arms no order to fire was given However, someone shot their gun. We don't know if it was the British, one of the British soldiers, or whether it was a Minuteman or someone from town. We have no idea. They always call it the shot heard around the world. But a shot was fired and that led the British to begin to fire. And eight Americans were killed immediately and 10 others were wounded. From there, the British will continue on and march to Concord. News of the skirmish in Lexington had spread quickly and all of the militia companies of community from miles around will converge on Concord. The British will immediately turn back for Boston because they got to Concord. They did burn the stores and people saw smoke coming from Concord and they're like, oh, they're burning the town. They were just burning the ammunition stores that they knew were there. Basically, it was ammunition that they didn't want the militiamen to be able to get and use against them. So they're like, we'll just take that. <laughs> and the Americans are kind of like, uh, no, you won't. Anyway, they got to Concord. They did take the, the stores of ammunition and then they're attacked. The Americans moved to the Concord Bridge. They attacked a British company. They killed several soldiers. Those are the first British casualties from the Revolution. The British will immediately turn back to head back to Boston, but they were continually and just constantly attacked along the way by American patriots. They were met with reinforcements in Lexington, which kept them from complete disaster. But by the time they got back to Boston, 73 British soldiers were dead and about 202 were wounded. They had actually, when counted, been outnumbered by the Massachusetts militiamen. It turns out that around 4,000 militiamen showed up in various places along the way back between Concord and Boston. The militiamen only suffered about a third of the casualties. Now, as other colonies heard about the violence in Massachusetts, community militia companies will mobilize throughout the colonies. Benedict Arnold and his army, along with Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys, are able to capture several British forts, including Fort 
Ticonderoga, which all of those were definite morale boosters for the Americans. And it's those actions, along with Bunker Hill, which we'll talk about in a minute, that establishes that a war had begun and that people were going to have to choose sides. While all of this was going on, the delegates from 12 colonies will reconvene in Philadelphia in the Second Continental Congress. The Second Continental Congress will open May 10th of 1775, and they represent all of the British colonies except for Georgia. Georgia hadn't been represented at the First Congress either. The delegates all agreed that defense was first on their agenda. So on May 15th, the delegates will resolve to put the colonies in a state of defense, but they're really not sure how to do that because they technically don't have the power or the money to raise and supply an army on such short notice. Now, eventually, John Adams proposes that the delegates simply designate the militia forces that were already besieging Boston and call them the Continental Army. So that's kind of what they did. They're like, you militia guys, poof, you're now the Continental Army. On June 14th, Congress resolved to supplement all the New England militiamen who became part of the Continental Army with six companies of expert riflemen from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. So bringing some of the other colonies in on it. And to make sure they emphasize their national aspirations, they needed a man from the South to command the New England forces. And they chose George Washington. Now he had been defeated at the beginning of the Seven Years' War, but he later compiles a pretty distinguished record. June 15th, Jefferson and Adams will nominate Washington to be commander-in-chief of all Continental forces. He was the only delegate who actually came to the Second Continental Congress in uniform. He had had it made. He wanted the position. He wanted his fellow delegates to see him as someone who was in command. He was very young. He was only 43. He was very experienced, though, as I said, mostly in defeat during the Seven Years' War, but he had some good battles. But he also brought political compromise because he was from the South. And like I said, they want to bring the South into the fight. He'll be elected unanimously and he served without salary. They quickly appointed a staff of major generals to support him. And on June 22nd, Congress will vote to finance the army because, you know, like, how do they pay for this? With an issue of $2 million in bills of credit that are backed by the good faith of the Confederate colonies. So they basically printed money and said, we hope this will be worth something someday. That is how they begin to finance the revolution. Now, on the same day that Washington was named commander-in-chief, you have what is called the Battle of Bunker Hill kind of misnamed. We'll talk about that. But it was happening in the north of Boston. The British had tried to take control of nearby Charlestown. The Patriots will dig in on Breed's Hill, which was a high point, and General Howe, British general, ordered his men to take the hill from them. There were townspeople watching on rooftops. People climbed the masts of ships in the harbor to watch and see the fighting. But essentially, the British will march up the hill in straight lines. But the Americans were hidden in trenches, and they could fire down on the British. Uh, So the British are not very successful. Twice they attempt to take the hill and fail. The third time they tried to take the hill, the Americans will run short on ammunition and they had to retreat. But that is the only reason they retreat. So the Battle of Bunker Hill, which was named after a nearby hill, not Breed's Hill for some reason, was officially won by the British, but it was considered a morale booster for the Americans who seriously wounded the British. They killed around 200 of their men and they wounded around 1,000. Rhode Island General Nathaniel Green will comment later, I think we've 
little reason to complain. I wish we could sell them another hill at the same price. The Americans had shown at Bunker Hill that they could stand up to the British Army. And thanks to Bunker Hill, many more Americans began to think that independence could really possibly be won. Now, as more people died, hope for reconciliation will die. The Second Continental Congress will reconvene in September of 1775, and they received news of the King's proclamation that the colonies were in formal rebellion. So at that point, they will move to organize an American Navy. They declared British vessels open to capture. They authorize privateering. They also will authorize contacts with foreign powers through their agents in Europe. That's another step toward independence. Prior to this, if they dealt with France, they dealt with France through Britain. And now they're saying, hey, we're going to deal with these countries on our own. In the spring of 1776, France and Spain will approve the shipping of supplies to America. And the Continental Congress will declare colonial ports open to trade of all nations except Britain. Emotional ties to Britain were a lot harder to break. But in 1776, Thomas Paine, a radical Englishman who had arrived in Philadelphia, wrote a pamphlet called Common Sense in which he basically said that Americans had previously wrapped themselves in the mantle of British tradition. He argued that the British system rested on the base remains of two ancient tyrannies, aristocracy and monarchy, and neither of those things was appropriate for America. Common sense essentially says that a monarchy is sort of a ridiculous system of government for America. He says, why should this son of somebody who's in charge get to become our ruler? And then he pointed out, why should an island govern a continent? This was a really influential influential pamphlet. It was actually meant to be read aloud. If you read it, it sounds very much like a Republican sort of sermon. And he overturns the assumptions and the long-cherished beliefs of colonists. And that's going to be a turning point in terms of cultural identity, how Americans saw themselves, and of course, of political thought. Thomas Paine blamed King George for the oppression of the colonists. And common sense will be the single most important piece of writing during the Revolutionary Era. It sold over a hundred thousand copies within just a few months of publication in January of 1776. It will reshape popular opinion, basically puts independence on the agenda. Now in April 1776, the North Carolina Convention will become the very first to empower its delegates to vote for a declaration of independence. What's going on is all the delegates have gone back to their colonies and said, we would like to vote for a declaration of independence. Do I have the support from you? And so each of the assemblies had to say whether they supported it. And so North Carolina is the first colony to say, yes, we okay voting for a Declaration of Independence. In May, the Continental Congress moved that the individual states go as quickly as possible toward adopting state constitutions because they don't want to be like, okay, we're at war and now have no rules and laws to go by. So they said, adopt state constitutions so there's not chaos. And so that's what they're working on. June 7th of 1776, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia will offer a motion to the Congress that, and I quote, the these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. After some debate, they're going to postpone a vote on this until July, but a committee was asked to prepare a draft declaration of American independence. The committee was made up of John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and 
Robert Livingston of New York. They will then assign the writing to Thomas Jefferson, the bulk of it. By the end of June, all the states except for New York had authorized a vote for independence. So on July 1st, when the debate comes up again, a large majority in the Congress supported independence. They voted on July 2nd. The final vote on July 2nd was 12 in favor, none against, and New York abstained because they hadn't heard back from their assembly yet. So they were just waiting. And they didn't want it to be like, well, we're going to vote against it because they didn't want to do that. So they just abstained from voting. So 12 in favor, none against, New York abstained. They then made a few changes to the declaration itself, including striking out a long passage that would have condemned slavery. Um, This was to pacify the South and keep them signing it. Now, the main part of the document recounted the long list of abuses on the part of King George that led the Americans to this drastic course. They didn't mention Parliament, who had been the principal enemy since 1763. They knew, though, that they needed the support of ordinary people, so they made sure to include the principles of equality, the right to revolution, all of those things that they'd been hearing in the Enlightenment. In this vote for independence, they proclaim their community, but at the same time that they're proclaiming it, they are actually committing treason against their king and empire. So they could be condemned as traitors and hunted as criminals and hanged for their beliefs. So anyone who signs this has got to be sure. On July 4th, 1776, these men will approve the text without dissent. So that is why we celebrate the 4th rather than the 2nd. John Adams had actually written to his wife, Abigail, and said, we would be celebrating July 2nd, 1776 for a long time to come or something like that. And it ended up being the 4th because it was approved without dissent. Also, if you've ever seen the portrait by John Trumbull of everyone gathered to sign the declaration, that's really not accurate. A lot of them had already left for various reasons. Reasons. So it actually had to be sent around to the different colonies for signing. And it's not officially completely signed until like late summer, early fall of 1776. I want to talk for a minute about causes for the revolution. There are many causes. Great Britain tightening trade regulations, restrictions on movement westward, taxes, of course, lack of representation, you know, no taxation without representation, all kinds of things like that. Some sought liberty for less noble reasons, like they made a lot of money smuggling and wanted to keep doing it. Some of them worried that the British would abolish slavery, so they were concerned about that. A good overall reason, though, was given by one of the Minutemen from Massachusetts. His name was Levi Preston and he said that he never felt oppressed and that he never paid a tax on stamps. He didn't drink tea or anything like that. And so when someone asked him, well, why are you fighting for independence? They asked him this and he said, young man, what we meant in going for those redcoats was this. We always had governed ourselves and we always meant to. They didn't mean we should. So really, the revolution in total seems to be primarily about self-government. Oh, and I meant to say that when we talk about Paul Revere and his going to tell everyone in the countryside that the British were coming, he never called out the British are coming, the British are coming, because if you think about it, they were all British. They all were considered British subjects. So what he likely yelled was either the redcoats are coming or the regulars are coming, which is what they called British soldiers. So that was just a little aside there. I thought it was kind of interesting. A lot of people are saying, oh, the British are coming, the British are coming, and that's not actually what was said. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. I hope you enjoy the little tea party on our road to war. Tune in next time when we'll get a little revolutionary. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and recommend the Magical History Tour podcast to a friend. See you next time.